Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with the director of the National Science Foundation, Dr. Setharaman Panchanathan, better known to all of us as Panch. What did the National Science Foundation do during COVID? Why they sprung into action. Then in biotech, with cannabis completely legal in 23 states and approved for medical use and even more, and with stronger and stronger formulations, it was bound to happen. Acute cannabis intoxication. With nearly 2 million ER visits in one year, Anabuelo Pharma is making serious progress on an antidote. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. There are three good answers now to who or what is Ada. The first is the famous Ada, Countess of Lovelace, daughter of the poet Byron and a famous mathematician and computer scientist. The second Ada is a computer programming language named after her. And now there is a third Ada. Gary Smith is a professor at Pomona College and the author of The AI Delusion. The story starts actually when the first time Hillary Clinton ran for president and she had all the resources and all the name and all the money and, and the campaign apparatus. And then this unknown person or barely known person with the unhelpful name named Barack Obama came along and, of course, uh, defeated her soundly and then won the presidency soundly. And one of the things he had going for him was big data, and that he'd compiled this big database of virtually every registered voter in the country, and he had profiled them, you know, what issues were ones to push and what issues to avoid, and where to advertise, where not to advertise. And so when Brock's eight years were up, uh, Hillary said, I'm going to run again, and I'm not going to let big data beat me. I'm going to use big data this time. But it was kind of a secret because... You know, one of her reputations is being carefully scripted and managed, and so she didn't want to come out as, I'm doing what the computer tells me to do. And so it was a secret computer program that very few people knew about. And she relied on it for virtually all of her advertising and for a large amount of deployment of resources in various states and so on. And it went terribly awry. Don't go to Michigan. Is... Don't go to Wisconsin. Did <laughs> yeah, it actually say that? <laughs> it did. Well, it didn't, computers don't say things, but what the computer printout was saying. Uh, Never mentioned those two states in actions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's go to Arizona and then we can get a landslide. <laughs> and meanwhile, real people, you know, the people who are on the ground in uh, Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota are saying, you're in trouble. You need to do something. And it was obvious that for humans, you go to the campaign rallies and, uh, Hillary would give a a presentation and it'd be mild applause or slightly enthusiastic applause. And then uh, Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump would give speeches and 20,000 people would show up and go nuts. And, but how do you put that into a computer? And uh, there's a saying, you know, not everything that you can count actually counts and uh, things that can't be counted sometimes do count and the computers can't actually count enthusiasm. And so they, they largely ignored that. And meanwhile, her husband, Bill Clinton, of course, the greatest campaigner any of us have ever seen, and he won on the, on the issue, uh, it's all about the job, stupid. <laughs> and he could tell that that's what was carrying Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump was the enthusiasm and the fears and the worries of people about the economy and their jobs. 
And Clinton, meanwhile, Hillary Clinton, meanwhile, was saying you know, her basic campaign message was, uh, hey, I'm not perfect, but Sanders is worse than me or Trump is worse than me. And Which sort of, of sounds it. computery. You know, we're going to show you what the, what the uh, various things are in relation to each other, you know, but yeah. uh, nobody ever stood up and applauded a computer uh, just for running a program, you know, so uh, exactly. So uh, you have it there. So it was sort of a cute thing that they called this program Ada, don't you think? It was. It was supposed to be the big reveal when she got won the election. What my secret weapon was uh, Ada and uh, a female name for a female computer program. and. Did it have different data than Obama or different algorithms? I think it was the same data, but it did things like it used historical data on tendencies for people to vote and places like Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota reliably went Democratic. So we don't need to worry about them. And it didn't even do polling in those states. And because the computer thought we always win those states, so why bother? Why worry about them? Let's worry about fringe states like Arizona. <laughs> Afterwards, uh, seasoned veterans said it, it was political malpractice that they didn't spend resources on the states they had to win to win the election. You look at the electoral map and you look on the ground at people saying uh, voters are not enthusiastic about showing up to vote for the Democratic Party. And they were right. And the computer was wrong. Pomona Professor Gary Smith's 2018 book is The AI Delusion. His most recent book is Distrust. Big Data, Data Torturing, and the Assault on Science. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with the director of the National Science Foundation, Dr. Sethiraman Panchanathan, better known as Ponch. He's committed to supporting innovation and opportunity in all of us and for all of us. Then in biotech, with 50 million Americans using cannabis and the formulation stronger than ever. Acute intoxication is now possible, landing you in the ER. Dr. Ken Kundi, the chief scientific officer of Anabuelo Pharmaceuticals, joins me to talk about their work developing an antidote and how they're testing it. Technation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Ponch. Ponch, welcome to Tech Nation. I'm delighted to join you, Moira. This is truly a pleasure. Now, Ponch, your real name is Sethamore. I can't get it right. You have to say it for me. It is Sethuraman Panchanathan. I often will tell people that will be the most difficult thing in any conversation, and now we have gotten that out of the way, the rest of the conversation is going to be smooth and great, Moira. <laughs> I like punch. I have to tell you that you can say Moira. It just rolls off your tongue. I can tell how many people can't say Moira. I get a lot of Dr. Gunn, Dr. Gunn. I'm like, okay, I got to, I got to, it's fine with me, but I got to teach you how to say my name. So it's a challenge. So excellent. Punch it is. Now, you're the director of the National Science Foundation, the 15th director, in fact. And while many listeners may know immediately what that is, 
many don't. Tell us, what is the National Science Foundation, also known as NSF? That's a great question, Moira. National Science Foundation is an independent agency that advances fundamental and basic research, as well as then following on applied research activities in all areas of science and engineering. So think of the DNA of NSF. Like a DNA has two strands, the NSF DNA, one strand of it is what I call curiosity-driven, discovery-based explorations. So NSF makes possible unbelievable uh, progress in terms of curiosity-driven, discovery-based explorations. The other strand that NSF makes possible is what I call use-inspired, solutions-focused translations or innovations. And these are highly synergistic. We all know explorations sometimes makes possible translations and innovations, and innovations also then make possible more explorations sometimes. This rich symbiosis is what NSF is, and it does it in all areas of science and engineering, including social behavioral economic sciences. Now, NSF is a government body, and it reports to the National Science Board. Tell us, how is this a government body, and what is the National Science Board, and what does it do? Actually, that's, again, a good question. NSF was established by an act of Congress in 1950. At that time, the NSF was established you know, with the definition of the role of a director for NSF, as well as a National Science Board, which is made up of 24 individuals who are chosen by the president. The director of NSF is nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. The National Science Board, essentially, because you asked me, as I was a part of the board before I became the director, I had the privilege of serving in the board for one term, six years. So the National Science Board essentially establishes the policies of the National Science Foundation and also serves as the advisor for Congress and the president. The board approves major NSF awards, provides congressional testimonies, and issues statements relevant to the national science and engineering enterprise. So we work very closely in order to make progress in all areas of science, engineering, technology for the benefit of the nation. This is almost above all of the three branches. I mean, you report to the president and Congress? I, I report to the president. And of course, I work very closely. I am responsible fiscally to the Congress, right? Because Congress funds NSF. Ah. So I'm responsible in that sense. I report to Congress on ensuring that our taxpayers' investments are used in the best possible way, in the most optimal way to advance science, technology, and engineering for our nation, keeping us in the vanguard of innovation, as well as making possible opportunities for all our citizens and making possible innovations everywhere in our nation. Now, what kind of work does the National Science Foundation do? And how is that different from NIH, the National Institutes of Health, which lets out so many grants in the medical and life science field? So think of this as all areas of science and engineering, the fundamental work. That's what makes NSF a unique agency. It advances basic fundamental research in all areas of science and engineering. NIH has a particular focus, which is on health. 
So when you talk about other agencies, some of them are mission agencies like NASA, for example, focused on space exploration, aeronautics and space. So this is what makes NSF a unique agency that it is responsible for advancing fundamental research and translational activities in all areas of science and engineering. And along with that, therefore, has this unique mission of ensuring that talent at all levels across the nation are inspired, motivated, energized, and brought to life. Whether it is K-12 talent, STEM inspirations in that, working with even programs which then get the teachers inspired by STEM, and then through community colleges, tribal colleges, minority-serving institutions, four-year colleges, research universities, which are also, some of them are minority-serving institutions. How do we get all these institutions energized so that talent will be, you know, made possible at scale all across the nation? Now, tell us, what are some of the more exciting research? It's all exciting. I know they're all your babies, Punch. But give us some examples of research that really excite you. So, you know, you look at what NSF makes possible, as I said, all facets of science and engineering. As you said, it's hard to pick, you know, one or two to communicate everything, but these are exemplars, right? These are exemplars. Let's look at it from the following perspective. We are here as humans, and we are in a context, namely planet Earth, and planet Earth then in the context of the universe. And so what is exciting that NSF makes possible is programs that helps us understand where we are in context, which means there's amazing work that happens in understanding the universe. And let me give you one example. In 2022, for example, we had the event Horizon Telescope collaboration, which announced the first image of Sagittarius A star, the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way, our own galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. Such amazing discoveries are made possible by people who get invested in by the National Science Foundation for unleashing their great ideas, but also the infrastructure that helps make those discoveries possible, in this case, the large telescopes, so these are the kinds of things that NSF makes possible as one facet. Now, on the other hand, I talked about where we are, who we are, the biology of who we are, the fundamentals of that, that again, tremendous amount of work that NSF makes possible. For example, you know, the CRISPR, the new biological tool that essentially came about was an effort that was funded by NSF and the investments that we made in an amazing person called Dr. Jennifer Dutna, you know, she received the NSF Career Award, which is the starting point for most young researchers, and then continue to do amazing work with her research contributions, which resulted in her receiving, you know, the one of the kind uh, recognition that NSF makes possible annually. Moira, you won the great award in the National Science Board <laughs> Awards you know, for your amazing public service. At the same time, there is this award that we give in honor of our first director called Alan T. Waterman Award. And that award, again, recognized Jennifer Dudna for her work. And that 
went on for her to uh, the garner this most prestigious recognition of all for a scientist, which is the Nobel Prize in 2020. So what is this? A natural immune system found in many bacteria is characterized and repurposed as a powerful new biological tool, CRISPR. So this is you know, fundamental because CRISPR was used even in the most recent thing that we tackled as the human race, namely the COVID pandemic. When you look at the vaccines, when you look at the, the PCR tests, the CRISPR tool was exceedingly valuable in that context. So that is why NSF's contributions in terms of the various things, whether it is where we are, who we are, or even the environment that we are embedded in. You look at anything, you look at the device that we carry all of us, the smartphone, or if you look at bridges, buildings, you know, if you look at the ecology, you'll find that NSF's imprints in terms of understanding as well as the creation, both is something that you can see in large measure. So that's what NSF makes possible, which is very, very exciting. Something which NSF has done in more recent years is say it's more than just creating the science. We have to move that science into reality, into products or, or inclusion in products. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I talked about the examples of even how the CRISPR technology has now resulted in being available for the moment that we needed, you know, solutions. There are many, many examples of such things. I'm going to give you an example, even in the area of the funding that we do in the social behavioral economic sciences. Because oftentimes people think of National Science Foundation as advancing physics, chemistry, biology, geology, computer science, and other engineering and so on. But we also, yes, we do all of that, but we also advance social behavioral economic sciences. So let me give you an example. In 2010, NSF-supported researchers used economic matching theory to develop a kidney exchange program that dramatically improves the efficiency and the doctor's ability to match organs. Again, for this work, you know, Professor Alvin Roth shared the 2012 Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences. So just to give you insights in terms of how the fundamental work also makes possible societally meaningful solutions. Now, you asked about how do we move from there to even products and services that people are familiar with. Let me give you another example. In 1990s, Qualcomm, which is a company that we all know, which revolutionizes cell phone technology with its CDMA, wireless technology, which became a Fortune 500 company. When you look at the origins, in the 1980s, Qualcomm received two grants from NSF's Small Business Innovation Research Program called the SBIR program. So when they had the basic idea, when Professor Witterby had the basic idea, he came to NSF and said, now I want to create a company out of this. And that company that again gets early investments through the Small Business Innovation Research Program that then starts to get subsequently you know, prototypes developed, venture capital investments, and other kinds of investments that then build these into large companies. So these are early investments before any venture capitalist would say, well, I think there's a real chance here you're going to make something happen. It has to move further along before you see that. 
And so you provide funds in that grant space. Correct. So we fund grants to even motivate the entrepreneurial spirit that is inherent in many of the youngsters, right? And not so young people too, like myself. I myself went through this innovation core program of NSF called ICORE. This is like a boot camp, Moira, boot camp that I went to because as a professor with my graduate student and an entrepreneurial mentor, we took the idea that we were working on because we were funded by NSF for that work. And NSF said, do you want to now see how this can be applied in terms of translating those ideas into a potential startup kind of activity? So we did that. So NSF invests small amounts of resources to get people this boot camp like experiences to even test that idea, to validate that idea, more importantly, to build the kinds of skill sets that you would be able to then use to create companies of the future, the entrepreneurial mindset and the entrepreneurial skill sets. So NSF does that. Now, from there, we also now with a new program called Entrepreneurial Fellowships, are trying to see how we can get more rigorous exposure to entrepreneurialness and pairing them up with experienced entrepreneurs, putting them in environments with their ideas to be able to start successful companies. Then we have this Small Business Innovation Research SBIR programs through which we provide phase one funding, phase 2A and 2B funding. These are all from a small scale funding of $100,000 to a few hundred thousand dollars to a million dollar scale investments so that you don't drop the fantastic ideas that has the potential to translate into successful ventures. You give them a chance to exercise all of these steps in the process of evolution, by which time external venture capital will hopefully look at it and say, this is ripe for investment because the risks are much lower. We are engaged in high risk, high reward investments. And that's what public federal investment should do is to lift up those fantastic ideas and then serve it up so that we might create the industries of the future, the jobs of the future, the technologies of the future, the solutions of the future. Now, many people don't realize that when you become the director of the National Science Foundation, you are suddenly on many advisory groups in many initiatives and many workforces outside of NSF. And we could be here all day talking about those, but there's one I want to ask you about. You are the co-vice chair of the Council for Inclusive Innovation. What is inclusive innovation? That's a fantastic uh, question. Yes, I, I am privileged and honored to serve in that capacity along with my fellow colleague from the U.S. Patent Trademark Office and other colleagues. This Council of Inclusive Innovation is basically charged with strategizing new ways to expand American innovation by tapping into this unbelievable strength of our nation's diversity and therefore increasing opportunities for all Americans to participate in innovation. So, you know, one of the things that I deeply, deeply care about that we as an agency advance really well at NSF is this concept of how do we make possible opportunities for everyone everywhere across our nation? How do we make possible innovation everywhere 
in every place in our nation, in context, of course. So therefore, in keeping with that spirit of NSF's mission, this council is you know, making possible these opportunities for innovation all across our nation. Okay, there's another one I want to ask you about. You're on the White House Gender Policy Council. That's a pretty sticky council, isn't it? What do you guys talk about? Oh, the Gender Policy Council was established by the president, President Biden, to advance gender equity and equality in both domestic and foreign policy development and implementation. So we cover a range of issues here, including economic security, health, gender-based violence and education, with a focus on gender equity and equality, and a particular attention being placed on barriers faced by women and girls. So it also plays an essential role in the president's efforts to advance equity in government policy for those who face discrimination and bias based on multiple factors, including whether members of Black, Latina, Native American, AAPI, LGBTQI plus communities, as well as persons with disabilities. So it is truly an honor, as I said, in keeping with the mission of NSF, that every human has tremendous potential, talent that is ready to be energized, whether they are from rural areas or urban areas, whether they are across the broad socioeconomic demographic, where they are across the rich diversity of our nation, where they are in our nation, in all 50 states and territories. The fact that we are able to give them the opportunities to rise up and contribute to not only their own personal welfare, but also for the welfare of the nation. Uh, This is truly an honor that NSF has the ability to be able to channel those energies of people into amazing possibilities. Now, you've been at the National Science Foundation for three years now as director. I do remember the very first time I met you, it was uh, at the, I don't know, the 65th anniversary, the 70th anniversary, whatever it was, anniversary uh, event that was there. And I just remember going in, you were to be the new uh, director, and it was about 10 minutes before we realized we had a pandemic. And I was like, what? What happened? We didn't know anything about this. And and literally uh, within days, and it was the last, you know, just general trip I took that was after that, we were all in lockdown. Now, your first three years, I mean, was the pandemic. And we know that we had incredible science in the development of treatments, in the development of diagnostics, and of course, our star, all the vaccines. But what was, during that period, what was the impact of the pandemic on other scientific research or all scientific research? I think, you know, the pandemic, as um, difficult as it was, we all went through that. It taught us a lot of interesting lessons, which are very positive. It taught us how science can lead the way, how science-based work over several decades could meet the moment and come up with rapid solutions. NSF, for example, unleashed a number of what we call rapid grants, which were grants that were granted within a month or two since the particular uh, investigator proposed an approach or a solution to the problem at hand. And we unleashed several, I mean, almost a thousand of them to be able to solve the problems and meet the moment. I'm speaking with Ponch. That's Dr. Seth Rahman Panchanathan, the director of the National Science Foundation. We'll talk more after a break.
Both Whole Tech Nation programs and Solely Biotech podcasts are available wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, technation.com and biotechnation.com. In the second half of our show, with strong doses of cannabis easily available in gummies and chocolate bars, children can be in special danger. And Abuelo Pharmaceuticals, Dr. Ken Kundi, tells us about the life-threatening effects on children and how Abuelo plans to test their antidote, now undergoing clinical trials. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Punch, more formally known as Dr. Setharaman Panchanathan, the director of the National Science Foundation. We've been talking about how NSF pivoted during the COVID pandemic, developing rapid grants to quickly fund researchers with new ideas and how their science might help. In a condensed form, we could see, you know, people using 3D printing technology that again is a great work that was inspired by NSF's investment from early 70s to 80s. And so that came to the moment in terms of, you know, 3D printing the um, the PPEs and, and uh, in a ventilator parts and others. Likewise, we had the work that we had invested in very early in the, uh, in, in the 60s and the 70s in terms of understanding a bacteria in Yellowstone that came to the moment as the PCR test which was used extensively in the COVID moment. So another many, many, many examples. In the interest of time, what I will tell you is, yes, it was difficult coming in as a director at the time of the pandemic just set in, but it was also an opportunity to understand the importance of how we can have work anywhere, innovation anywhere, opportunities everywhere that can actually be realized in a true way because of our framing of our, you know, how we looked at the future in a different way, given the challenge that we were facing at that moment. I have to say that has really set the tone for a future that is probably in an accelerated way, setting us in a much brighter, prosperous, and, and, and a much more enriched and empowered future, I would say. And so that's how I've looked at it. And so at NSF, therefore, we have taken that as a moment of finding new ways of making opportunities available, making innovation available. Let me give you two examples on that one. One, we launched a new directorate of technology, innovation, and partnerships. This is the first new directorate of NSF in 31 years. This directorate 
is about how do you take the amazing innovations and discoveries, the fundamental discoveries that NSF makes possible in all areas of science and engineering, but this cross-cutting directorate pulls those innovations and working in partnership with industry, working in partnership with economic development ecosystems, entrepreneurial ecosystems, venture ecosystems, and other partners, how do we draw out these ideas into the technologies and industries of the future, whether it is AI, whether it is quantum, whether it is biotechnology, whether it is advanced manufacturing, whether it is advanced materials, whether it is advanced wireless technologies, whether it is automation, robotics, you name it. All of these technologies being made possible in a rapid form, being taken out and realized into the technologies and the industries and the entrepreneurial ventures of the future. But it's not just that. It is also that that experience then feeds back and pulls and, and, and makes possible more innovations, more discoveries, because when these innovations in context, you find limitations, that drives you to go back and look at the fundamental questions that needs to be still answered, fundamental discoveries that still needs to be made. And so it opens up new problems to solve, new problems to look at and make new discoveries possible. So this symbiotic relationship is what is make what makes NSF very unique. Mm -hmm. So that is what I call innovation everywhere. We just launched Regional Innovation Engines program and you will see how through that program, there are many, many innovation activities all across our nation being energized. And uh, there is a website that captures all of the different projects. So I will leave it for our listeners to be able to go and explore away. The other dimension, which is opportunities everywhere. We, we thought about it and we say, how do we make possible opportunities and innovations everywhere? So one of the things that limits certain institutions is their capacity to be able to take the fantastic ideas that they have. As we all know, ideas are democratized. They are everywhere. It is not limited to certain class of institutions or certain regions of the country. It's everywhere, whether it is a minority serving institution or a tribal college or a community college or established research universities. It's everywhere. And therefore, what you want to do is to be able to empower all institutions to be able to tap into the investments of NSF because you're able to take their ideas and present it in a form that transcends the gold standard merit peer review process of NSF. And so this is a gold standard because everybody across the world looks to it and says, we want to emulate this, right? So we've got this rich, rich review, review, review standard that everybody looks at with awe and admiration. So how do we get these ideas coming from everywhere to meet up to this level of standard and exceed this level of standard? So we have created a new program called GRANTED, which is an acronym growing research access through nationally transformative equity and diversity. Granted, put in a simple form, it is providing the research services, research infrastructure that established universities have, whereas emerging institutions and smaller institutions don't have. And so how do we make that available for them? And so NSF is investing so that ideas from those institutions and those individuals also have the ability to transcend the gold standard merit review process, which means that the democratized ideas are all going to be lifted up, which means innovation is going to happen everywhere across our nation. Opportunities are going to be everywhere across our nation. Now, you are a man who has a perpetual to-do list, which is a mile long. 
Anything comes off of it, more goes on. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows it. So imagine some years from now, just for yourself, just for yourself here, what would you like to have accomplished at the National Science Foundation during your tenure here? Thank you so much, Moira. Thank you for asking this question. I will tell you, nothing gets accomplished by one individual. We all know that. It is the entire system. I'm so proud at NSF to have an amazing team of people working so hard every day. We talked about the pandemic. They worked so hard even during the pandemic. And then we are partnering and hyper-partnering with other agencies, industry, all across the nation, working with K-12 systems, universities, economic development ecosystems, entrepreneurial ecosystems, venture ecosystems, philanthropy, foundations, and international partners. So it takes a village, as I would say. So given that backdrop, what I would really like to see is that we make this mantra of opportunities everywhere, innovation anywhere, absolutely real. That is, students who are from rural communities, students who are from social, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, in, in situations where their uh, the economic and, and, and the social limitations have precluded them to participate fully are given the opportunities and that they are able to exercise their talent and ideas at the fullest extent, to the fullest extent. So across the broad socioeconomic demographic, across the rich diversity of our nation, across the rural urban geographic, you know, uh, you know, sort of um, diversity that we have in our country across all 50 states, across all territories. If everybody in these places feel that their ideas have been able to be exercised to the fullest extent, their their uh, their energy, their I, uh, their their uh, latent talent has been able to be expressed, that would be the future that we would really want. Because if you do that, then this concept of innovation anywhere is an automatic byproduct automatic byproduct. So these two things being realized. So I, as I look into the future, whether it is end of my term or whether it is beyond that forever, the metric of success is how fast and how comprehensively and fully we have been able to accomplish this opportunities everywhere and innovation anywhere. That is the true metric. Well, Punch, thank you so much for joining me. And I have to say, you are always welcome on Tech Nation. I hope you come back and see us again. It would be truly a pleasure. I would love to join you, Moira. You're awesome. And what, what, an, what, what an honor to talk to a recipient of our NSB's highest honor, <laughs> uh, the Public Service Medal, and to talk to a recipient uh, is truly an honor. My guest today is Punch, or rather, Dr. Sethiraman Panchanathan, the 15th director of the National Science Foundation. And I'm sure he would like me to repeat, innovation anywhere, opportunity everywhere. More information is available at nsf.gov. That's nsf.gov. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Today's cannabis is not your father's cannabis. With escalating concentrations in liquid and solid form, in gummies and chocolate bars, it is now possible to overindulge. Acute cannabis intoxication can land you in the ER. Anabuelo Pharma is working to create an antidote. Dr. Ken Kundi is the chief scientific officer. Dr. Kundi, welcome to the program. Thanks, Moira. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Now, the Summer of Love, San Francisco, 1969. The hippies, young people from all over the world came to San Francisco that summer, and they were smoking marijuana, grass, cannabis. What's the difference in potency between the cannabis smoked by the hippies during the Summer of Love and what you would regularly obtain today? Well, so cannabis has evolved over time here because of... uh, really the growth in use of cannabis since the 60s and 70s to what it is today. So back in the day, uh, you would obtain versions of cannabis that had maybe 5% of the active ingredient. And the active ingredient in cannabis is what we call Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, complicated name, but THC. And THC would be about 5% of that product. These days, with the growth in legalization and decriminalization, the market has grown, the competition has grown, and so there are much more potent and pure versions now where you can see greater than 30% in the smoked version, and then there are oral uh, edible forms that are now extremely potent as well. So it's a, it's a different game these days than it was back in the uh, 60s and 70s. And there are also many different ways of ingesting it. That's correct. So as this competition grew, you know, right now there are 23 states that have legalized recreational use, uh, and there are 38 states that have actually legalized medicinal use of cannabis. So that's led to a very large market, a lot of competition, new forms for ingestion. And the, the ones that are growing very rapidly are edible forms. Often these look like normal foods, so they may look like chocolate or gummies and they have a very high content of THC. So what happens when you ingest in any form that active ingredient, THC? What happens in the brain, in the body? Yeah, so THC acts on a receptor in the brain called the cannabinoid receptor type 1, or CB1 for short. And CB1 is one of the most abundant receptors in the brain, and its normal role is to regulate the release of other neurotransmitters So it has a controlling effect on many functions in the brain. So throughout the rest of the body, there's also some receptors of CB1, but it's primarily in the brain. And there's a second receptor where CB2 uh, is actually targeted by cannabinoids in the periphery, so in the outside parts of the body and has other effects. But all the brain effects, so all all the good effects, all the bad effects, of THC on the brain are mediated by one receptor, and that is CB1. So people feel high. What is that? So CB1 uh, stimulation, when it's partially stimulated, can lead to euphoria. So, you know, the body normally has a balance between feeling good and feeling bad. So CB1 regulates where you are with that. It keeps it in a, in, in a stable situation. So when there's too much overstimulation of CB1, then you start to get the negative effects on the brain of overstimulation of CB1. And that is the effects you see from consuming too much uh, cannabinoids or too much cannabis. And those can include things like sedation, anxiety, you can have panic attacks, you can even have psychosis. And these are the things that lead people uh, to seek uh, medical attention. How many people in the United States use cannabis at some level, and and how many people get into trouble with it? Do we have any numbers? Yes, so let's put that in perspective. In the U.S. alone, about 50 million people are using cannabis. 
and that is uh, about 18% of the population. That's a huge number compared to other things like cocaine or opiates. And out of that 50 million people, obviously many people are trying new forms of cannabis or many are actually unfamiliar uh, with the amount of cannabis in the products they're seeing. So in the year 2019, about 1.7 million people reported to emergency departments with some form of cannabis-related uh, toxicity. And in a lot of cases, we, we see that is acute intoxication with cannabis or other cannabinoids. Well, with 50 million users and much stronger products and, and many more options for consuming them, and the fact that it's legal in many places, people can unintentionally take too much. What does it look like? How serious is it? When do they end up in the ER? Right. So what happens is when people who take too much cannabis or overdose uh, on a cannabinoid, they can have symptoms of severe sedation. They can have anxiety. They can have panic attacks, even psychosis. And that may lead them then to go to the emergency department to seek medical attention. In fact, in the U.S. in 2019, about 1.7 million people ended up in the emergency department with some form of cannabis-related issue. And many of those were intoxication as the result of an overexposure to THC. Well, what's the standard of care for these people as they show up in the ER? So there is no approved drug for treating ACI. What happens is physicians may try to treat some of the symptoms uh, with other drugs. So if you have a fast heart rate, they may give you a drug that's designed to lower your heart rate, like a beta blocker. If you come in with anxiety, they may give you a, a drug for anxiety, like a benzodiazepine. But nothing they do is addressing this underlying reason for the bad effects of the cannabis, which is stimulation of the CB1 receptor. If you should find yourself in the ER with an overdose of THC, how long do you expect to be there? Right. So if someone has taken a, an edible form of THC, the effects can last anywhere from 8 to 12 to 24 hours, depending on the dose and the individual. So you may end up in the hospital and you may be sitting there waiting to recover from your symptoms for many hours. In fact, if you have what we call psychiatric symptoms, so maybe the psychosis or the agitation, you might be escalated by the emergency department to the psychiatric ward, and there you're going to be present even longer. You may have overnight stays. You may actually be evaluated for other treatments as well. So it could last a long time. So now let's look at the drug that a nebula is developing. And, and as we're just talking about it here, let's be clear, you've, you've completed phase two. You've been in discussions with the FDA for phase three and have gotten the feedback that says, okay, here's how we go into phase three. You've, you've got a clear path here. What's the principle behind your drug? Right. So our drug is ANEB001, A-N-E-B001, and it is a blocker of the CB1 receptor. It's what we call an antagonist. So it actually sits on the receptor and prevents THC from overstimulating the CB1 pathway. And what that results in then is a blocking of these unwanted effects of cannabis that are causing the sedation, the anxiety, and even the euphoria, uh, completely blocking the, uh, 
the normal effects of THC. So cannabis may still be in your system, but you're not processing it. That's correct. Well, your, your system will still have THC in it, and it will eventually get rid of it. But while it's there, it's not having those unwanted effects on the brain because the CB1 receptor has been blocked. Now, you've just completed the phase two study. How did it work? What did you do? And what did you learn? Right. So we conducted a phase two study to try and replicate in healthy subjects what normally occurs when you've been overdosed with THC. So basically, we take healthy subjects and we give them what's called a challenge study. Uh, so they get a challenge dose of THC, and then they're either immediately treated with our antidote, or we wait a while and then treat them with our antidote. And this study was run in the Netherlands at a place called the Center for Human Drug Research, which has done many studies with cannabis. So we initially set this study up in three parts. The first part uh, was completed with relatively high doses of our drug and relatively low doses of THC. So we took 60 people, we gave them all 10 and a half milligrams of THC, and then we treated them either with a placebo or with a 50 milligram dose of our drug or a 100 milligram dose of our drug. And what we saw in that situation was that we blocked the key outcomes for THC. So we decreased the feeling high, we increased the alertness in those subjects. Then we moved to the second part of the study, which was really six groups, one after the other, where we gradually changed the THC dose or changed our antidote dose. So we actually pushed people to a 30 milligram dose of THC, which is pretty high. Um, and we were able to show that even if you waited one hour before you gave them ANAB001, you could rapidly reverse whatever TH symptoms they were having. So you got a very significant decrease in their feeling high, improvement in their alertness, a decrease in their body sway, which is a measure of their balance. A body sway. <laughs> body sway. And then an improvement in their uh, heart rate. So their heart rate also was shown to decrease. So in that setting, we saw a key reduction in all of these symptoms of THC that normally would be looked at as that's what you normally see in a, in a subject who has ACI. As an update, we have also extended that phase two study now to a third part, so part C. And in that, we were able to give higher THC doses than we've ever given before. So going as high as 40 milligrams or 60 milligrams. And the only way we could do that was to make sure every subject also received our antidote, ANAB001, at the same time. And when we did that, we saw very mild outcomes, so no overt effects of THC, clearly showing that we're having beneficial effects, even at very high doses of THC. So summer of love, we're talking 5 to 10%, mostly in the 5%, and you're testing now up to 60 milligrams and uh, you're trying to get the, the, full, the full spectrum of what can be delivered today. That's right. We're trying to capture in healthy subjects a, a sense of what is going to be going on in the emergency department. So as much as we can give safely to healthy people, uh, we're getting pretty close now to what would actually put people into the hospital. Now, is this an injection? Is this, what is this? So this is a single oral capsule that is given, like I said, in the study we gave it either with the THC or an hour after the THC, but it's one dose 
and that's enough to take care of the uh, of the symptoms for the duration. Now, as you go into phase three, I know you're planning that now. How will that differ from what you did in phase two? So phase two was purely a uh, an attempt in healthy subjects to create symptoms like we might see in an emergency department. So our plan going forward is actually to do some of the work in that setting, so still use large numbers of uh, healthy volunteers or other volunteers and test our drug and its ability to block and reverse the effects of THC. But the other aspect is we will do a study in an emergency department setting where we will take actual patients that are presenting with these symptoms of ACI and show what the effects are for reversal uh, with our drug. Now, these are intentional users who got into trouble. I'm thinking with these edibles like the gummies and chocolate, children can easily get into the stash to use the vernacular. What do we know about when children consume these products? Right. So with children, it's a particularly serious event if they have an overdose of a cannabinoid that stimulates CB1. So it doesn't take, obviously their bodies are smaller. It doesn't take as much drug to cause these serious outcomes. And that can present in the form of severe sedation, even respiratory depression where you you have trouble breathing. Uh, And in the worst cases, it can lead to children that are in the coma because of much too high exposures to THC. What do you do for children then? So currently, as I said, there are no treatments, approved treatments for ACI. So what's happening right now with children is they are being managed uh, by, in a lot of cases, they're even using uh, respirators in order to manage their breathing if they have respiratory depression. Uh, But they're also being treated with the other drugs that I mentioned to try and address some of the symptoms but that is very difficult in children. So it is. this is a, a very serious setting. I'm having difficulty trying to figure out how you would test in children. Yeah, so it's always a, a progression in uh, getting a drug ready for, for treating adults and then children. You always start with adults generally. Uh, so we would obviously try to get this drug out there and ready to be used in the setting of adults. But at the same time, we would be looking to expand the studies into the younger age groups. And one of the things we do to address that as well is to look at other ways of giving the drug. Obviously, if you're a young infant uh, or an infant that has symptoms as severe as I described, then uh, they cannot be treated with an oral capsule. So we're also looking at what we call parenteral or not oral. Uh, It's given by injection uh, as an alternative way to give ANAB001 in those cases. Well, I would imagine that some of the people that show up in the emergency room, they, uh, they're incapable of taking a tablet. That's correct. So in the more severe cases, even in adults, there are some that have vomiting as a result of their overdose of THC or of other cannabinoids. And so those, those would also be ones where having something else you could inject may add value. So that's definitely something we're pursuing right now. Now, I have to ask this one question. The, the receptor in the brain, it's called CB1. Is the CB for cannabinoid, uh, or is this just a coincidence? It's called the CB1 because it was discovered originally using cannabis. So when researchers were trying to figure out what was the reason that cannabis causes 
uh, this, the brain effects that it causes, they identified receptors. And the first, obviously, was called a cannabinoid binding receptor type 1 or CB1. It's only later that they really figured out what the <clears throat> normal body uh, compounds are that activate that pathway. And those are called endocannabinoids. So they knew about cannabinoids first, and then they found the receptor. So they named it after it. That's correct, yes. So it's very similar to what we call the nicotinic receptors in the brain. And these were discovered by using nicotine. So what happens is often we have compounds that are natural, that obviously have effects, and then researchers figure out how they're having the effects by identifying the receptors. And so they're named after the natural uh, compound before we even know what it is in the body that is also uh, activating them. So do we have receptors in our body that don't have any names? Yeah, there are receptors that are still being identified. Those are what we call orphan receptors. <laughs> so until they're adopted <laughs> by something or someone or some condition, they're just orphans. That's correct. Yeah, until someone either finds a natural compound that activates them or finds exactly what in the body their purpose is, uh, they remain orphans. Well, Dr. Kundi, uh, thank you so much for coming in. I hope you come back. Keep us updated. Thanks very much, Moira. It was great to talk to you. My guest today is Dr. Ken Kundi, the Chief Scientific Officer of Anabuelo Pharmaceuticals. More information is available at anabuelo.com. That's A-N-E-B-U-L-O, anabuelo.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.